Welcome back to the Drift Space. I'm your host, Dave. I'm G. I'm JR. And I'm Rebecca. And we are the Drift Space. If this is your first time joining us, all you really need to know about our podcast is we are the dorks you laughed at in middle school. Now. (laughs) (laughs) More more like pointed at and said, don't hang around those kids. (laughs) Nerd. More importantly, I just want to point out Rebecca went last this time. We had to push her into the back just because she was wielding a, too, a little too much power uh, a couple episodes back. We had yeah. to give Dave yeah, I need a break. <laughs> I need a break. <laughs> well, as we just hinted at, Rebecca was feeling charitable enough to let somebody else drive today, so I will be your host for this episode. <laughs> um I would be beholden and to you. Real, real quick up at the top, make sure you're following us on our socials, on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the Twitters, at The Drift Space. Post out a lot of awesome content on there, including some of Reb's artwork. So you can enjoy that there. Now, getting into the episode proper. In 1982, director Nicholas Meyer gifted us with what has been widely regarded as the best Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. Now, I only know one way to start this off, so b- bear with me here. Acting Captain's Log, star date 7 40 15 1. Before diving into what this movie <laughs> means to us and what we think makes it special, I'd like to take a brief moment to recap the history of it. You know, our start. Our story begins in 1967 in season one of the original series with the episode Space Seed. This episode featured a group of genetically engineered supermen from the 1990s, led by Khan, on the SS Botany Bay. After being awoken from stasis by the presence of the Enterprise's crew, they attempted to take command of the Enterprise, but were eventually abandoned by Kirk on a desolate planet known as City Alpha 5. Spock punctuates this episode with... It would be interesting, Captain, to return to that world in 100 years and learn what crop had sprung from the seed that you planted today. Now, fast forward a bit. From the pen of Wrath of Khan writer Harv Bennett, at least the initial writer, we are afforded the opportunity to explore exactly what that crop looked like. This crop is one of revenge, whereby Khan intends to make Kirk suffer as much as he has. The resulting event is a galactic showdown centered around a life-generating, planet-creating Genesis device. And Khan's radical nature has grown, as well as the highly publicized size of Ricardo Maltabon's chest, who I think <laughs> we can all agree is an absolute powerhouse in this. <laughs> Speaking of his performance, not his chest, though both are quite remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> now, getting back to the topic at hand, Wrath of Khan does a lot in the two hours we're given here. There's just so much meaning that it unpacks, and it's such in a profound way while layering in other really significant plot points that I'm sure we'll discuss, not the least of which is Kirk's impassioned Khan cry that somehow manages to echo in the vacuum of space. <laughs> Suffice to say, this is a movie that I love dearly. Truly quintessential Trek. 
And it's something that I'm really excited that we're talking about today. You know, when we were initially talking about, you know, what episode we were going to be doing and when initially presented with this idea, one of the first things I thought of was this. So quick show of hands, how many of you were introduced to this movie by G? You can't really see it, but I am raising my what? hand. Okay. So uh, everyone, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> Thank so you. That, Thank that, you. That was one of the first things that came to mind was the, that this is obviously G has introduced me personally to a lot of awesome films. And this is this one was a little bit different, though. This was a flick that I always felt like was almost like a required reading material for our friendship, G. <laughs> 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 okay, I can accept that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and right. so all that to say, like, this is obviously a movie that is something incredibly meaningful for you. So I'm really interested to hear your take on this and understand what makes this film so special for you. Wow, Dave, I, quite the lead in. So, yeah, first, I want to point out real quick the irony of William Shatner who uh, went on a countrywide screening tour of this movie, but he was initially put off by the screenplay before it was even shot. He, he didn't want to play a James T. Kirk going through a midlife pr- crisis. He, he felt that, you know, with solid enough makeup, he could still look young and ready to explore the galaxy. But, you know, today here he is taking the spotlight for, for it because everyone recognizes this is Star Trek's finest hour. Uh, two hours, actually. And I think he must as well, you know. And so after that, I don't even know where to go, Dave. This is this is one of maybe maybe top three all time favorite movies at least. And yeah. I, I I find that there's so much to love about it and so much to talk about that it's all sort of trying to cram through the door at once. And as a result, nothing is getting out because they're all trying to get out the door at once. Uh, so I I don't know. Uh, I guess I suppose I'll play the comparison game, first of all. Coming off of the motion picture, you know, this is sort of a discussion question for all of us. Coming off the motion picture, was this a movie more to your liking, uh, Dave, JR, Reb? Uh, and, and how was it more to your liking? And was there actually anything you thought the motion picture did better than Wrath of Khan? Well... <laughs> <laughs> The Enterprise had longer screen time. (laughs) So congratulations, I guess. Okay, that was the last question. You could have led in with the more. (laughs) Well, I will answer the fact that I'm always a huge fan of practical effects. And I I will advocate practical effects until I'm blue in the face. And this movie is far, far superior in practical effects with the, I forget what the creatures are called, but the ear shots, the close-up ear shots. The SETI seals, yeah. Yeah, those were all, they kind of pulled a Alfred Hitchcock, you know, where Alfred Hitchcock wanted a close-up on the finger dialing the number on the rotary phone. So they built a giant rotary phone and put a, like, foam plastic finger on it and turned it well that was kind of the same thing they did with this movie with the ear they built a giant (laughs) prosthetic ear and then they created a puppet and they put the puppet through the ear and just add tons of goo i think that's some of the coolest stuff ever i love practical effects 
As far as did I like the movie better? Yes. Dear God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel about it, JR. Oh my God, it was so good. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, Wrath of Khan is, it's a, it's almost like a living work of art just because I feel like some movies have heartbeats to them. You know, like it it lives on in some form or fashion. I feel like Wrath of Khan ineffably has a really solid heartbeat that continue that transcends time almost. And that's not because it doesn't, you know, touch on similar points to the motion picture. It's just executed in such a profound way. I mean, I I. I said the word profound earlier, but like that's what that's exactly what it did. I mentioned that, you know, this is a film that it kind of centered around the vengeance of Khan against Kirk. And, you know, while that's the most obvious element of Wrath of Khan, it's it was like not the first and primary creative element that Harv wanted to incorporate. In William Shatner's book, Star Trek Movie Memories, he recalls Harv's first creative decision was that the sequel should uh, honestly and aggressively deal with the obvious unavoidable aging of the Enterprise crew. I've decided almost immediately that the film would celebrate these characters, wrinkles and all, while allowing them to grow and to move forward in their lives as people. And it did just that. And Wrath of Khan tells us what happens when our heroes age. How do they move forward from that? And, you know, how do they continue to stay relevant in their uh, later years? That was an element that we spoke briefly about in the motion picture but the way that it was executed on in wrath of khan just felt so much more meaningful if that makes sense yeah i think you make an interesting point that the the i guess the midlife crisis (laughs) that kirk is going through is a major major factor in the themes of this movie you know this is a movie where characters are getting old yep They, they feel they are getting old all right, do you throw in the towel and and hand it off to someone else or do you move forward? And, you know, I always love the idea of characters being being pummeled to the point of uh, submission in, in stories because, you know, when characters are at their lowest, it's so much more satisfying to see them rise to their, their highest. And uh, <laughs> it's not just that Kirk is getting old. But it's also that he's <laughs> he he sees this son who is a full grown man he's never seen before, uh, who doesn't know him. He's blindsided by this man he hasn't thought about in fifteen years, who wants to kill him. And I love the line in the film: "You ask me how I'm feeling. There's a man out there I haven't seen in fifteen years trying to kill me. You show me a son, be happy to help him. How do I feel? Old and worn out. And I love that line." He, he, he's just worn down by it all, you know, his, his past decisions and everything. It, it's a lot of fun to, well, not a lot of fun to see that that's depressing, but like, it's a lot of fun to see him rise from that and take on the, the personal issues and the adversaries that are, that are marring him in the story. It is a really interesting aspect to this and, you know, how he kind of overcomes it. And like, I I wonder if it took a villain like Khan and that adversary from 
15 years prior when he was a younger man to serve as maybe not, impetus isn't the right word, but, you know, helping to spark that, you know, overcoming the, those feelings that he was having. Still, old friend. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I knew that was going to be there somewhere. But yeah, like, do you think that if we'd had any other villain that it would have been as profound? Uh, Well, here's the thing. Khan wasn't a villain out for revenge until this movie. Right. And the thing about Nicholas Meyer is he, he took the concept and ha, uh, took the concept. The, <laughs> <laughs> he took the concept and he he morphed it into a revenge story. He morphed it into Moby Dick for for that character. It, it's it's interesting because I don't want to say Khan wasn't the the right decision or the substantial decision to the story, but the Enterprise had a lot of adversaries in in the original series. They could have easily taken any of these villains and twisted them on in into revenge stories and, and whatnot. But I do think Khan was very, very much primed for the part in this case. Uh, he had the intelligence, the Shakespearean gusto <laughs> to really push Kirk down even further. And right. I think, I think more so than the episode, this movie is what made him the adversary that we all remember him as. Yes. I, I mean, there, there's certainly, this is certainly the movie where he, where, where we see how bad things can get. I, I definitely, you know, going back and watching something like Space Heat, I can definitely see aspects to it, like how th- this, for lack of a better term, evil was born. <laughs> and so it, when, when they go down onto CD Alpha, quote six, really it was five, right. when they go down to, City Alpha Five, and they look in his in the quarters. They see all of the the books in there, and those were books that were hit on very heavily in Space Seed, Paradise Lost, The Inferno, Moby Dick, King Lear, The Holy Bible. All of these different things, these timeless literary works, are all aspects that kind of merge into one person. I could definitely see it in Space Seed, but this is where it was like screaming those things. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. And I think I think one of the things that drew director Nicholas Meyer to this movie were those aspects because he's such a a literary nut. He 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 was really drawn to Khan's intelligence through those, you know, those stories and those ideas and whatnot. I like to throw in a few of my scents here. I, I love reading and hearing about how writers, directors, artists, etc. find their own inspirations and experiences in, in life to portray them all in the, this metaphoric painting and share it with the public. I read a few facts about Nicholas. Okay, first of all, is it Mayer or Meyer? Meyer. No, okay, like thank the Oscar Meyer Wiener. Okay, a few facts about Nicholas Meyer, and as always, I... I found it fascinating going inside, not only in the mind of the creator, but in the heart of the creator. Meyer had little to no knowledge of Star Trek in general, and when he first saw a few episodes of it, it reminded him of the books he used to read as a teenager and Captain Horatio Hornblower. I, he got a sense and familiarity that the ships and inside the ships were uh, naval ships and other nautical experiences. 
experiences. Which makes sense in the hindsight, because that's what Star Trek is. Voyages and sea battles that take place in space. Most people, including myself, uh, believe that Wrath of Khan is based off of Moby Dick. While that is partially true, uh, that was mostly for the actor Ricardo Montalban to better understand his character as Khan. I read in an article that Meyer's true inspiration behind Wrath of Khan was the movie The Enemy Below, the story of two dueling captains, one on a destroyer ship and the other on a submarine. Does this sound familiar, GJ? Very <laughs> much so, yes. Yeah the, <laughs> yeah, the film takes place on the Atlantic Ocean during World War II, and it was released in 1957, and this was the real major influence behind the Wrath of Khan why do you always steal my topics? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, JR, what did you have to add to that? The only other thing I was going to point out is that every time I watched it, that I got more of a uh, submarine kind of feel at the battle at the end there. And while I was watching the uh, commentary, I was actually uh, confirmed with that along with the lines of what Rebecca was saying that most of the uniforms and the way the ship is perceived is all nautical based because of influences that he's read throughout the years. He said he was a fan of 20,000 Leagues of the Sea, Jules Verne's books. So I finally got my confirmation that, yeah, all the stuff that I was getting off vibes in the movie were direct inspirations from books like that. It's it was a major point for me too, Jr. Actually, I want I wanted to bring up the sort of na naval feel of the movies, costumes and ships. You know, while the Enterprise crew sort of evoke this nautical look, Khan's crew look like pirates essentially. I mean, you know, they have these ragged, torn clothes, dirty but comfortable in their tatters, and uh, and to add to that, the starships themselves, Meyer sort of envisioned these ships as almost slow, lumbering boats on the high seas. The very first attack on the Enterprise is even two ships flying by one another while one of them slams phasers into the side, kind of like cannons shooting from the side of a ship. Now, Meyer kind of course corrects with this idea using space, using three-dimensional space to beat Khan, but I, for one, loved the vision that these supposedly fast ships are visually portrayed as slow lumbering behemoths. What what were your thoughts on that, JR? Starfleet's best game of battleship they've ever seen. No, um <laughs> I very much enjoy the the adaptation of a na naval battle, like you said, like a three-dimensional chess game, whereas we're only used to playing one-dimension chess, you got different layers and on top of that so being in the ne nebula it de definitely reminded me of like an old submarine wartime film which I absolutely love is probably my favorite part of the movie besides the overacting from William Shatner well you're gonna get that anyway <laughs> so, <I> mean... <laughs> yeah but like it's it's hyped up to 11 in this movie like I already said the still fern part but yeah. I mean, <laughs> like him holding the apple, I don't like to lose. I love how the apple is kind of brought back in the 2009 J.J. <laughs> Abrams Star Trek. Oh, yeah. While he's he was taking the Kobe <laughs> Ashimura. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, in that movie. 
actually, Jr. It, it's interesting you mention his his overacting. I think first of all, let me say we, we keep bringing up Nicholas Meyer. I, I think he is the unsung hero of this movie, who is a tremendously underrated talent and a very thought provoking individual. This this man is the antithesis of the idea that only fans should make movies based on big franchises. But I'll I'll get back to that that later. But one one of my favorite stories about this production was when uh, Nick Meyer was directing the scene where Khan gives Kirk 60 seconds to hand over all information about Genesis and instead activates the prefix code which orders Reliant to lower her shields. When Khan says time's up, originally William Shatner said the line, here it comes, with like a smirk on his face or a sneer in his voice or something like that. And Meyer worked with him and said, Let, let's take that out. Khan's smart. He's going to know you're up to something if you do that. So Meyer has said that this was Shatner's most subtle performance in a film, and that took a while to get there. And I, you know, I sort of agree with that. I think he's actually brought down a lot outside of Khan and still old friend. I think Nick Mayer is, isn't just a storytelling director. He's an actor's director. He appreciates nuance and detail. He, he worked with Shatner closely to get the performance that executed the story best. And now if we compare that to how big and over the top he was in the motion pe- picture with bones. I need you badly. <laughs> Not that I think he was particularly bad, but you, you can tell there was more work put into the delivery with this one as opposed to the motion picture. Hey, y'all, Dave, jumping back in here real quick, just to let you know, um, just full disclaimer, we had some technical nonsense going on, and it seems like if it seems like things didn't flow well, maybe we repeat some things, that's why. Uh, We talked to our folks in IT, and they seem to have worked it out. Turns out we had some tribbles in the network. At any rate, let's (laughs) continue, shall we? With with me screaming, God, a whole lot during that whole ordeal. I'm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and well that's why we went okay and then we held a a brief but compassionate and emotional ceremony for his lost audio <laughs> or seemingly lost audio um we had our own little search for spock search for audio will. search for audio <laughs> and now we're back <laughs> and now we shall continue this I latter think- half for the voyage home <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so terrible! Wow, that was rough. <laughs> oh, I, I think I think uh, where we left off was I was talking about how Nick Mayer uh, was not just a great storytelling director, but a great actress director, due to how he was able to pull Shatner back a little bit from uh, you know his Shatnerisms. Jr., you didn't seem to think that so much. Does do you or anyone else have any comments on on that? William Shatner did an amazing job in this movie and it was quite it was quite tame for Shatner but like uh, I think I mentioned earlier the Shatner that did shine through was very much William Shatner <laughs> if that makes sense and I think to be fair like you know we we watch these these movies and we watch the original series we see Shatner on the screen and the reason we called these things out is cuz he means something to us right I mean that's part of the reason why we love his ca- character is because of his Shatnerisms. And yeah, I, I will agree that this is a tamed down version of, you know, what we got in the motion picture and in the original series. 
I think it just makes my heart very happy that we still got some awesome Shatnerisms in Wrath of Khan. Yeah, I can I can go with that. I mean, you know, still old friend is a great line. And I think, Dave, you and I are particularly fond of the line when Sulu says, Sir, you did it. I did it. Nothing. <laughs> my God, I love that line. <laughs> it's awesome. It, it's so perfect. And it's I don't I don't feel like it's at all misplaced or anything like that. I think it's very well placed and it fits his character very, very well. But if you don't mind, I'd like to transition from the acting to something a little bit different here. You know, gee, I know that you are our music junkie here, (laughs) for lack of a better term. So for me, like this, Wrath of Khan is a very much a perfect marriage of visuals and music cues. And James Horner put a lot of thought into this from the motifs to trying to, I mean, we talked about how the story and the visuals were very much, you know, shippy, I guess, <laughs> you know, um, nautical. Nautical. There you go. There it is. Shippy. <laughs> shippy. I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> I think shippy's better. Yeah. Shippy. 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 So, All right. So it, it it very much fell in line with the nautical f- everything of this. So I wanted to gather your thoughts on what you thought of the score and James Horner's work and thought and everything that he put into this. Yeah. So put me on the spot, Dave. I um like you didn't already have well, something no, I, prepared I, for music. <laughs> I really didn't. No, I really wasn't gonna go into it because but but it's I, I should because this is probably maybe my favorite Star Trek score. And I, I don't entirely know if that's just because of the association with the film or the fact that was the first Star Trek movie I saw, but it, I love James Horner's score in this. And there are a lot of beautiful themes going on here. There's Kirk's theme, which, you know, we hear blasted uh, during the end credit. I'm sorry, the, the beginning credits. There's the enterprise theme. That's more elegant and beautiful. And of course, Spock's theme, which we actually don't hear in its full on glory until the the next film. But I, I, I have to agree, like Goldsmith, Horner has a way with just executing the right sounds and the right themes at just the right time. Uh, I, I was going to bring this up at some point, but my favorite shot in the entire movie is uh, when the Enterprise has to pull away from Reliant because Reliant has, uh, Khan has set off the Genesis torpedo for detonation, right? And it's this this wide shot of the Enterprise to the left, slowly pulling away because it's a slow lumbering, you know, seaward ship. And in the background, the Reliant just kind of <laughs> caterpillaring across uh, with one engine. And of course, that beautiful background of the nebula, the the warm and cool colors mixed together. It's a beautiful shot. It just encapsulates the entire, you know, conflict going on there via ship form. And in during that shot, James Horner's orchestra just screams. It just blares out this like magnificent theme that's kind of it's it, the the danger motif of the film. And it really like as if the shot wasn't pretty enough, it just makes my heart sink when that music just explodes. And then, you know, the very next shot, it calms down because there's something else going on. But it was perfect. 
it was perfect. It, despite how slow the ships are moving, despite how beautiful everything is looking, James Horner's music really brings the, the element of danger to life in that one shot. And I often have to find myself the remote and rewind it just so I can experience the emotion of that one shot again. So I, I'm right there with you, you know, in the same way that Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams pulls together uh, just the right themes for just the right moments. James Horner is on point here. And we, uh, you know, he's no longer with us either. And we've, we've really lost a great talent with him, with him gone. Yeah, definitely. One thing that I, I mean, you talked about Spock's theme and how it makes a, a brief appearance in, in mm-hmm. here. One thing that I really liked about that was the way that it layered over Kirk's theme. Yes. And how really emphasized their bond with one another, especially in such a traumatically emotional moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it was just very beautifully orchestrated, much in the same way that uh, John Williams does that. Uh, John Williams is famous for for doing similar things like that as well in um, in another galaxy far, far away. <laughs> but right, right. It's. I just found it to be exceptionally profound. Yeah, JR, what did you think of the music in Wrath of Khan? I mean, I can't I can't do it justice as far as G does, but I will go ahead and say it over and over and over again because it's my favorite part of the movie is the score during the final battle where they're trying to play chicken with each other basically and they're they're looking for each other and you can't you can't see you can't they can't see each other over scanners or visuals just because of the nebula and that music certainly helps the intensity of the scene and it makes you feel it makes you feel a little claustrophobic like you're just waiting for you you don't know what you're waiting for you're just waiting for something like we've been hitting on it's a very nautical esque feeling because you're what's the uh term i've heard used spam in a can like you know, uh, you're just you're just waiting to get out of that situation, and it's so tense, and the music just builds and builds and builds, and you're just waiting for a payoff. So it's it's beautiful, it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable the way that they use that music to give you that feeling of claustrophobia in the vastness of space. Mm-hmm. I, that's that's remarkable. It's I, I love that. I have two uh, favorite pieces of the score in two different scenes in this movie. The one scene after um, the Genesis device explodes, Reliance gone, and after uh, the Enterprise's warp speed, safe and sound. It's that piece where you hear when when you see Spock's empty chair, and then then Kirk then Kirk oh. runs out into the hall, and you see like two different things that are happening up. Uh, a planet that's being born and you see Kirk running toward Spock who is, who is dying. So it's like, it's like the juxtaposition of life and death. Yeah. Yeah. Bittersweet and heart wrenching. That always gets me. And, and going back to Shatner's acting when he stops and when you just see the profile of his face, Mm -hmm. when he stops and looks at Spock's where where Spock is, he pauses, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He does pause. It, it's that this was... profile of him. He pauses, and then he runs out of frame. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that was. Um, I think that's probably the very first time everybody saw Kirk um, 
just broken and not his usual Kirk self. He he ha- he literally went through something traumatic. The worst thing ever is losing he can't his best swagger friend. His way out of this okay. one, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, you don't see it. You can even hear it in his voice because I. That's a distinct memory I have of the first time I saw this movie, and it hits me every time. Where he gets on the intercom to talk to him, and the first thing you hear is him just yell Spock, but it's not. It's almost a plead. You can hear his voice catch, and William Shatner can act. He can, in that scene, he can act. Really? (laughs) My God, he's actually learned how to act. (laughs) He's experiencing (laughs) acting. (laughs) I wish I could do it justice. The the way he, Spock, like, he just yells it, and you can hear him, like, trying to hold back tears. It's a very emotional plead. I feel like that's not just Kirk yelling at Spock. I feel like that's actually Bill Shatner yelling out. And I think, well, now I think it has more meaning because, well, we lost Leonard Nimoy a few years ago. And uh, every time I see this part of the movie, I kind of get a little uh, teary-eyed. My second favorite score is afterwards when they're coming to arrest and they're witnessing the Genesis planets. And it's after Bones asks Kirk, are you all right, Jim? How are you feeling? He says, young. I feel young. And then you pan towards uh, the Genesis planets and there are a bunch of trees and there's sun and life. And the score behind that is just, it's like you're taking a walk toward heaven or something. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. But and, and when you see Spock's, Spock's coffin, you, you, you just know immediately that he's not gone. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, that I I love that you brought that up because I think one of the big things that I saw in this movie was there's a lot of the biblical imagery, right? Oh, the biblical parallels are ridiculous. <laughs> the first seven days, you know, where City Alpha Six was lost, and when the Genesis device created that sixth planet, that's the day that God created man, and that's also the day that Spock landed on the new City Alpha Six. Right, yeah. Spock, you know, being almost reborn because of, you know, this Genesis uh, Genesis created City Alpha 6. I thought that was, I, I love that parallel right there. I thought that was absolutely beautiful. That's a good point. And I think, I think this is probably the most compassionate and kind-hearted I've seen in, I've seen Spock. More so than the last film where he seemed cold. And in this one, he seems more, relaxed, self-assured, kind, and kind towards his crewmates, especially after his selfless act. And if I might be so bold and putting it, say maybe Spock was in the, putting in a position like a, a Christ-like position almost and referring to Kirk that he is his friend and always shall be basically telling him that even after death, Spock will be with Kirk and which ironically happens in the next film. No, I'm not saying Spock is Jesus. No. When we go into the next film, I think there's some merit to that theory, though. You know, it, it's interesting that a lot of people like to throw around the, oh, he's Christ-like whenever a character you know makes a great sacrifice or dies or something like that. But I do think, you know, especially with Nick Meyer behind the camera, the literary references don't stop at just, you know, A Tale of Two Cities or Paradise Lost or Moby Dick. Uh, the biblical references are there, too by far death and rebirth 
giving one's life for others and telling them that even beyond death, they will always be with them. It, it, it has a lot of similar rings to it that we can. We can it's connect. very spiritual. Yes, it's very spiritual. It is very spiritual. I completely agree. I think this is the most spiritual Star Trek has ever been. No, I'm not going to put Star Trek five there because <laughs> but, no, but Rebecca, <laughs> no, Rebecca, Rebecca, it, it's a Rebecca, good premise, Rebecca, but a bad movie. Rebecca. What? What does God need with a starship? <laughs> I need nothing. <laughs> I would I would agree with that statement. I I think in a lot of ways there's there's a very spiritual feel to everything from uh, the way vengeance is handled to the way getting old is handled, the way death is handled, the way birth is handled in this movie. There's a lot of reverence to all of these concepts, actually. Definitely. It, it goes through the entire, appropriately, life cycle, right? Right, it, yeah. It gives a, um, I mean, to use your word, it shows a reverence for the whole life cycle as opposed to, you know, this fear of getting old, this fear of death, and it, it approaches it with love and compassion and, under, you know, understanding. And, you know, it's all part of this process that we all go through. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and and it's never, it's not exactly in order either, is it? No. You know, uh, the life cycle of, of Kirk getting older, the midlife crisis, and then accepting his age, his position with open arms you know, generally takes place before the the death and rebirth that we see uh, at, at the end of the film. Of course, you could you could use City Alpha Six. Oh, I'm sorry, City Alpha Five as as uh, an example of something that was destroyed, but some something horrible was birthed from it. The the birth of vengeance, in a sense, for Khan. So there's there's just a whole lot of this going on. It's a giant amalgam of very powerful and emotional narrative themes that's just you know wrapping this movie up and then tossing it our way and in a very emotionally satisfying way and then here we are like 40 years later (laughs) (laughs) unpacking a fraction of it right no and and it's isn't it weird by the way just how this movie was made on a shoestring budget, practically. You know, they used, st- I'm sure many of you noticed the stock footage used from Star Trek motion picture, especially when they leave dry dock. The fact that most of the movie, most of the scenes in the movie take place on the bridge. <laughs> I mean, it does. Uh, it does. Oh and Nick Mayer, Nick Mayer even asked, well, why didn't you, you, you wanted to explore different portions of the ship. Why didn't you? And his response was something to the effect of, did you see the budget? <laughs> this was made on a budget of about a third of what the motion picture was, <laughs> I think. And they made a more satisfying and thematically emotional movie out of it. Uh, one that I go back to constantly and still find myself, you know, you're wiping tears from my eyes while watching. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, they looked at it and said, okay, we don't have the budget for this. Let's make sure that we're investing in the story and making sure that that is as polished as possible. And I know like with the amount of thought and care that Harv and Nicholas Meyer and uh, I can't remember, there was another writer as well, but the 
the amount of love that they put into this and the amount of thought that they put into this really shines through. And it goes to show you, like, you don't need to spend a lot of money to make a great movie. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You just need talent and resourcefulness. I want to segue into a another subject. I want to point out a certain character that, in my personal opinion, has come out as a badass in this film. And no, I'm not talking about Kirk. I'm not even talking about Spock. I'm not even talking about Savick. Although she is pretty badass as a character. I, I can't decide whether I like Kirstie Alley or Robin Curtis best. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm talking about Chekhov. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Are you going I, where I think you're going th- with this? Please do. I feel like Chekhov throughout the films and episodes, he may have gotten the short end of the stick, but in this movie, he really goes through hell. He gets captured, he gets tortured, he's enslaved by those seti eels to do Khan's bidding. He was even forced to watch Khan torture and kill those scientists on Regula, Regula 4. Regula 1. What is that ship called? Regula 1. Use that. Um... <laughs> I, I don't know. All right. Gwyneth. All righty. <laughs> Not... Anyway... Not to mention, he witnessed his commanding officer's suicide before before he's about to pull the trigger on Kirk. He suffers tremendous torment and trauma that almost led him to the brink of death throughout most of the film because of Khan. Any regular man would have broke, kind of like what Captain Terrell did. But the first thing Chekhov did after coming back from sickbay was walk onto that bridge and say, could you use another hand at the bridge, Admiral? What's even more amazing is that I don't think he was fully recovered at that moment because I noticed a certain limp as Chekhov walked to station and his facial efforts and trying to hide his inner and outer pain. If you look at that scene again, you notice Ahura nodding at him for approval and concern. I mean, that, my friends, is a badass. I also love the poetic justice Chekhov is given when he's in charge of firing the very torpedo that crippled the alliance (laughs) and injures Khan. (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much that i yeah. loved that he was the I, one i feel like who fires the torpedo i feel like after all that Chekhov's been through kirk knew that he needed this which is why he told him to man the weapons comm i really think Chekhov came out as a hero in this film and no i'm not saying this because i i did met walter koenig in dragon con but it's true the irony here is that Chekhov actually never met con in the original series the the whole scene where Khan says, I never forget a face. Well, technically, Chekhov wasn't a character in Star Trek in the, yet, or in that episode, at least. And when uh, Walter was asked whether he, he knew that, whether he knew to correct them or, or whatnot, he basically said, I, I knew I'd never met Khan, but I didn't want to tell anyone and because I, I, I feared that they would make my part smaller. So... <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is fine. Maybe, you know, maybe they met off screen on the Enterprise somewhere. I can totally buy that. But I, I do agree that Chekhov's arc here is fairly satisfying just for the fact that he's the one who hits the button when they take out the Reliance engine. That was very satisfying. One thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about this was that I don't think they would have had to meet for Khan to know who he was, though, so, because in... Space Seed, Khan rummages through all of the archives. Uh, he hadn't he hadn't met 
uh, the historian, the 90s historian either. And then she walked in and and he already knew who she was. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of how I reconcile that piece of it. Not bad, Dave. Not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm picking up what you're throwing down. You smell when I'm stepping in? Absolutely. And it is delish. <laughs> you know what else is delicious? Mm. The visuals and the the beautiful, beautiful visuals in this. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that I thought think is absolutely remarkable in this is everything. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Wrath of Khan was actually the very first completely CGI sequence. It had the uh, the very first completely CGI sequence in it. Yeah. Uh, they had brought uh, Lucasfilm on to do it for them. And the Genesis sequence that we get in Wrath of Khan completely CGI. And that was the very first time that was done. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was stunning. <laughs> it was absolutely stunning. I thought it was it held up very, very well for me. But, you know, while we're on the subject of CG, I would be remiss in not asking our resident graphics and visual and piccolo lover here. <laughs> God. <laughs> what she thought of it. And um, I guess the true captain of the drift space. So, Rebecca, tell me, <laughs> what did you think of all things sight in Wrath of Khan? It was all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Her most um, profound she's been. <laughs> I did pay attention to um, certain effects, like when Chekhov and Terrell are on City Alpha 5, you see like a sandstorm brewing. Well, I think that was definitely visual effect somehow, because I'm not sure unless they had a giant fan that's on the set so that blue tons and tons of sand in their face. Um, I'm pretty sure they used uh, some sort of effect for the sandstorm, which, and I, I can tell a little bit. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure I could be wrong, but I think that was probably like one of the very first, um, well, for me, I think it looked like one of the first like natural um, atmospheric uh, visual effects, you know, like sometimes how they would use water for like Pacific Rim and, um, but yeah, I have noticed the visual effects, but the thing is, I wasn't paying too much attention to all of them because I was paying more attention to what the characters were doing, where the story was going. And of course, the color schemes of each scene, like I've noticed that how Khan, whenever it goes to Khan, it's like a bright, beautiful light in Reliant, which in actuality, Khan is that is evil, dark and sinister but and in the enterprise it's dark and red like almost like blood bloody red but they're the heroes they're like the underdogs or something and i i thought that was pretty pretty astounding there and it was pretty it was pretty (laughs) (laughs) no i think i think that's fair you know this is a movie that it blends everything incredibly well together so when any of the vfx actually show up on screen it just blends in so well. You don't really, it doesn't stand out in a way where you're like, Oh, that was, I was awesome. It, it's a, for lack of a better term, a symphony of all the things that works really, really well together. Yeah. Uh, on, on the topic of the effects, you know, the, the, the budget for this was much smaller than the last movie. We already mentioned that. And we, they had to use some shots of the enterprise 
from the last movie for this one. But the new shots of the Enterprise, I do want to bring up the very different sort of look they were going for. You know, in comparison to the motion picture, which I will never tell you that that movie doesn't look gorgeous, but it, you know, it has a very pristine and realistic look with lots of cooler colors. And when I mean cooler, I mean in the blue range of the color wheel. So there were lots of blues overtaking the movie. The This film, on the other hand, has more of a comic booky look, if I may. Uh, something that resembles the original series more, which I think they were kind of going for. There were lots of warmer tones that are mixed in there as well, especially uh, in the, the Battle of Matara Nebula, which is, again, like I said, is my favorite showdown in Star Trek. I, I love the way that the models are maneuvering through all that smoke and the colors and that their, you know, their little windows are lit up even brighter <laughs> as they, as they like emerge from it and whatnot. I just thought it was a really neat look. I thought it was a really cool look. And as, as beautiful as it was to see the enterprise look over V'ger and enter V'ger and all that stuff, this movie sort of gives us a little more to look at in terms of where the ships are flying and, the shots that we're getting of them and the colors around them and whatnot. And being a fan of model work, I really appreciate it. I, I, it made me miss uh, model ships being used in film over CG ships because, you know, I, I, I loved the last few episodes of uh, Star Trek Discovery where we, we saw some Federation ships kind of fighting their way through uh, an enemy and there were lots of quick shots and they were flying really fast and stuff like that. But there's something about these heavy, bulky models with the uh, the damage sort of etched into the side of the Enterprise and whatnot that just really looks great. And and I'll never get over just how gorgeous the Enterprise looks. <laughs> it just, even battle damaged is just a sight to behold. And I love, I can't help but sort of root for it as a character when it takes a downward spin behind the Reliant or it pops up behind the Reliant again or something like that. It, it's just, uh, it's fun to watch. Everything about it is so gorgeous looking. And I thought, I thought the model work mixed with the background space nebula effects were just, were just gorgeous. This would also make a very pretty screensaver. <laughs> it would, it very much would, but this, this particular screensaver has a little more narrative to it. than. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Speaking of the screens to saver comparison, I kind of wanted to turn turn things over to Jr. for a minute and see what his thoughts were or what what points that he had. I'm going to harken back to what G said about the look of the movie feeling like a comic book. I can I can see where he's going with Khan's and his crew having very brightly like a brown attire, but it is still poppy. It does pop a lot. They look like pirates. Yeah, they do. And whereas you compare the Enterprise in Red Alert with the red outfits, it does fit like a... I mean, it's not far-fetched from what we've seen Vegeta training in the Gravity Room in Dragon Ball Z. It's <laughs> it's a... Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's a certain tone that we know and we're familiar with. And... Again, because I'm a broken record, it goes back to that nautical theme of red alert, shields up, you know, high alert. So, and then on top of that, the nebula, which is beautiful. I'm sitting here actually looking at a screenshot of it where it's got these purples and these greens. 
and in the background it has almost like a uh, spotlight where you can see the Reliant actually trying to come at the Enterprise where it's almost plain chicken. And I actually think one of my favorite shots is from the Nebula. And it's it's not them playing chicken, but it's them looking for each other. And they literally, they pass over each other. Like, they just crawl. You know what I'm talking about, G, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I the believe- submarine shot. Yeah, where the yeah, Enterprise is like shot where above it. Yeah, they're basically right on top of each other, and they just pass by each other without even knowing where they were. Yes, it's probably I my love favorite that shot. shot. It's probably my favorite shot out of the whole movie. JJ, you mentioned that um, the Enterprise is a character of itself, right? And I completely agree with that. I also, I also agree that the Reliant was a character too, but a tragic character and. Being little, uh, seeing the Reliance, I've always thought, "Oh, that's the bad ship. That's the bad ship." But now that I, but now that I see it, I realize, oh man, poor Reliance. And just, I feel like the Reliance has just been, just, just got the wrong end of the deal pretty much throughout the whole movie. Short end of the stick. Yeah, like Chekhov. Yeah, <laughs> it it's interesting because I think the interesting about this. Uh, conflict in, in, in terms of starships is that this might be, and I'm going to have to go back, but this might be the first instance we've actually seen two Federation starships go at each other, which is part of the excitement and part of the suspense of it all, because the Reliant, by all intents and purposes, is just as powerful of a starship as the Enterprise. It's a Federation anyway. And, you know, when the odds are that even it elevates the stakes a little bit more. So the fact that Khan and his group of space pirates essentially stole this thing really, really helps the drama, I think. And it, it also brings to light that, it, it's funny to bring this up because not a lot of people think about it, but the two, the protagonists and antagonists in this movie never actually meet in person at all. There, there's, no, there's no scene in the movie where Kirk and Khan are in the same room. And I totally forgot about this. For years and years and years, it, it didn't ever bother me. It broke rules, it seems like. They never meet each other. They never are in the same room with each other. I mean, how can that be? How can you create an entire movie of two people at each other's throats, but they are never actually in the same space at the same time at any point in the movie? Same that's, space. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's incredible screenwriting right there because I never thought about it. I never thought about how odd that is and how that really shouldn't work at all but the starships sort of represent their their duel in the sense that okay so they're not occupying the same space but they are they are at war with each other and the starships the enterprise and the reliant are sort of their their swords that they're using to yeah their you know, go to war yeah their weapons that they're using to go to war with here i've i always found that just one of the most incredible parts of this movie to me because how many movies out there get away with the main villain who we are intimately into not actually meeting the hero face to face. It is interesting because I do think that this is a film that can stand on its own in the absence of the original series. Oh, absolutely. Interesting. You brought that up because I've never seen the original series. Really? Really? We'll kill him later. Go on, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, the, the first time that I watched this, I had watched only watched the original series. 
uh, I think I've mentioned before that my dad uh, is affectionately called Spock by my mother. And I was like, I want to get to know my dad. So I watched <laughs> the original series. Um, so I was familiar with these stories at a surface level, but I didn't remember Khan the first time she introduced it to me. It wasn't until after I rewatched the original series later that I realized like, oh, there you are, Peter. I <laughs> <laughs> Podcasts on Hook coming in a few weeks. Go on. <laughs> But it, it's this is just a long winded way to say that you're right. <laughs> it's yeah. it's absolutely amazing that they are able to pull something like that off, especially because we don't really get a whole lot from Khan's character as a in terms of it being a sympathetic villain either. Other, I mean, we know that he was marooned on the island. We know that he had been or island. Listen to me. <laughs> I'm getting all shippy again, guys. Um, he was on Fantasy Island, so <laughs> true, <laughs> very true. Uh, he was on, he was on, on deserted on a planet. His wife died, and from that spawned this tale of vengeance and resentment towards Kirk. I mean, that's 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 something, but it's not a whole lot to go off of. But somehow they still pull it off, right? That's his whole arc, right there. Is is vengeance and vengeance to the point where it blinds him. You know, towards the end, when they start entering the nebula, Kirk has to patch his voice through to the Reliant and say, Khan, we tried it your way, but we thought we'd uh, come back for a rematch. I'm laughing at the superior <laughs> intellect. And he just <laughs> full power, you know, <laughs> goes in and, and it, it, it's it's uh, he's so obsessed. He's so obsessed with with killing Kirk. And I think that's what makes the arc so interesting, makes it stick out, is his obsession with with getting back at him, getting revenge on him and whatnot. And I, I feel like he even acknowledges it at the tail end when he quotes Moby Dick. I mean, what do you think? Why well why else would he quote Moby Dick <laughs> if he's <laughs> No, that that makes that that makes sense to me because I, one of the things I was wondering in Wrath of Khan, like what makes Khan such an interesting and compelling villain, given that we don't really get a lot from him or about him? I mean, is it as simple as Ricardo Montalban's performance? Because I'm okay with that. <laughs> I mean, like I said before, dude is a powerhouse. But I want to know what y'all think here. I feel like Khan being a villain, I feel like he... I feel like in Khan's mind, in his mind, he's he's the hero. He believe he believes that with Kirk's death, he and the rest of his brethren will finally be free. The problem is he gets so obsessed and goes too far and torturing and killing other people, even snapping at his subordinates. Nicholas Mayer mentioned that he doesn't care if a character is sympathetic, but that you understand them and know what their motives are. In Khan's case, he was marooned in, on City Alpha 5, and Kirk never bothered to check up on him, which caused the death of his wife. So in Khan's mind, Kirk is the villain and the evil one, and he's the hero and savior, ready to seek justice, and in reality, it's cold blood, thirsty vengeance. I think, Dave, you also have... You have a point with uh, Mataban and his performance here, there is a lot of exposition going on when 
he's revealed to check off again and he goes through the entire story about how he was marooned on the planet and his wife is dead and what happened to the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm not a big fan of long exposition like that. I, I typically don't think it works. It works here. And I think, you know, one of the reasons it does is because you're you're so enthralled with this individual's performance, his gestures, his his uh, charisma, and his real chest. It, it's just incredible to watch him perform the way he does. And he, he, he does this throughout the entire film. He has a sort of onstage Shakespearean gusto. It's a little over the top, but we totally buy it. It's just part of the character, ingrained it fits. in the character. It does fit. It does fit. He's he's theatrical because I mean, look at all the reading material he has. <laughs> yeah. So it it does fit. I I will heart build on what G said because one of my favorite villains is Doc Ock in Spider Man Two. Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina, and it's funny after he finished Spider Man, he actually went on to do a Shakespeare play on stage so it's definitely his his ability his his acting talent that makes him such a interesting villain to watch but i'm also one of these villain groupies who likes to just study villains why do they do what they do what makes them think they're in the right so i think rebecca has hit the nail on the head as far as his goals as him seeing himself as the hero. That's a good point. In the context of this movie, I can, I can, I can kind of see that. Yeah. We're, we're all talking about Khan and Kirk and Spock, Chekhov, but uh, I'm wondering if all of this could have been avoided if Carol Marcus hadn't made Chekhov and Terrell go down to City Alpha 5 in the first place. And beforehand, Spock's death, her co-worker's death, even later on in the next film, her own son's death could have all been avoided if she hadn't created the Genesis device at all. I mean, that wouldn't have led back to City Alpha 5, that wouldn't have led back to Khan, it wouldn't have led back to Reliance Mutiny, wouldn't have led Spock dying in the process of saving the Enterprise, and so on until Star Trek 3. I mean, it, it might as well be renamed Star Trek 2, Carol's Fault. But no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> that's quite the I mean, that's quite Carol. the count back. Thanks for ruining that for me. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry. I'm joking, actually. Carol Marcus had the best intentions to to make lifeless planets into living ones for people who have lost their planets and are struggling to find food and survival. I mean, her heart was in the right place, but like all good intentions, it's a double-edged sword. And this film shows there are always consequences whenever people try to play God. And it focuses a lot on Khan's and Kirk's actions, but that they overlook Carol's. She's able to create a device that turns dead planets into living ones in six minutes. Would that not scare the living crap out of some people, especially the Federation? Yes, Your Honor. <laughs> Drawing back from from literary proverbs and whatnot, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and hell came for everyone involved with this. I've got something uh, to ask regarding Meyer again. We've we've pretty much established. I think earlier on, before my internet cut out. I called I called Meyer the the unsung hero of this movie. You know, he he 
put his heart into it. He he took it seriously. Uh, he rewrote the film in, I think, seven days and didn't receive credit for the rewrite. It was a page one rewrite as well. Now, I think, personally, as long as you're a solid filmmaker and storyteller that respects the material, like Nicholas Meyer did with Star Trek, like Christopher Nolan did with Batman, you'll come out with a solid movie. Whereas, you know, hardcore fans or fanboys that a lot of studios seem to have been hiring for specific movies tend to have a hard time seeing beyond how starstruck they are that they're making their giant fan film. They, they tend to be a little more self-indulgent like Peter Jackson was with King Kong, or they incorporate a little too much meaningless fan service like Mike Doherty with Godzilla King of the Monsters or arguably J.J. Abrams with the latest Star Wars. Do you guys think that being an outright super fan of material is necessary to make a, a, a great movie in the franchise? Because if we go off the normally universally agreed uh, opinion that this is the best of the Star Trek films, Meyer isn't a super fan. He just took his job seriously. What do you guys think? I mean, of course, in the context of Wrath of Khan, I'm going to say, obviously, you don't have to be a super fan to make something awesome. Nicholas Meyer is obviously somebody that's exceptionally talented. He he wasn't a super fan, but he was able to create and execute on on a vision inspired by the same spirit of, you know, Gene Roddenberry. And I think what he was able to do was maintain that same spirit of Gene Roddenberry. And that showed up in Wrath of Khan. Now, if we look outside of this with some of the examples that you mentioned, obviously, Star Wars was a big one that popped up for me. And, you know, you look at a lot of the DC titles out there right now. I don't think you necessarily had to be a super fan. I think having a passion for it can help. Where I think the super fandom comes in handy are in things like long running series where you have a showrunner who might be a super fan. So thinking about the Russo brothers, right? Kathleen Kennedy is another another example. Uh, Dave Filoni, you know, the creator of Clone Wars, having big time super fans to have this vision I think is a is an asset, but is it required? I don't think it's necessarily required because obviously it can be done without it. I find that a very satisfactory answer. I am looking forward to JR's answer just because I feel like this is something, you know, he might have some interesting insight or uh, a varied opinion on because, you know, there have been some super fans out there that have made some very successful things. There's also been some super fans out there that have completely botched it completely. It's been my experience, though, that I find super fans, fanboys, put in charge of these massive movies. Sometimes they they they're more interested in making their really expensive fan film than they are a compelling narrative and story. I think Star Trek Two is a compelling narrative and compelling story just on its own, right? Right. But I feel like you know I brought up Michael Doherty and Godzilla: King of the Monsters. You know, I, I had when we went to see that together, I had to explain to you some of the Easter eggs in there so you weren't scratching your head at some of them. Everything in Star Trek 2 is pretty much explained to you in a self-contained way. The winks I get in, say, King of the Monsters or, or say, I don't know, Jurassic World, they go a little far in terms of fan service to the point where you think, wow, nostalgia is cool and that it, it 
tugs the heartstrings at the time, but it doesn't really last. It doesn't age well. And then you go back and watch these movies and you think to yourself, well, eh, that really didn't do anything for the story or the plot, did it? Yeah, I, that makes sense. I think, like, like I said before, I think as long as you're executing on the vision and spirit of the original content or evolve, uh, tactfully evolving from that, I think as long as you do that, I'm satisfied. <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm an easy mark for these kind of things, though. You know what? And I'm an easy mark too. Like the nostalgia thing completely gets me, but it's normally after the fact where I go, well, was that really necessary? Do we really need to waste time doing that? Or could it have been spent on something that could have been developed a little bit further? You could sit here, you could try to argue, well, they brought back Khan from the original series. Isn't that fan service? But the thing is, Khan is a centerpiece to the entire story. <laughs> you know, he wasn't a little nod or a wink at anyone. He was a full blown catastrophic antagonist in this thing and i thought if, if you're going to pull things from the history of franchises back into the fold it should have a major major impact and it should be something very profound and very important to the narrative so i'm going to answer that question but i'm going to use a different form of entertainment okay i i haven't mentioned it on a pad podcast but all three of you know that i am a super fan of Kevin Smith and Kevin Smith is by definition, one of the best fanboys ever. He's directed several movies that he's written. He's directed several episodes of flash. And the point I'm going to make here is he's written a handful of comic books that I've read without fan servicing. He's actually pulled off a very good story with the material he's given. For example, I, know very little about daredevil other than what i've seen on the netflix tv show but i picked up this comic book he wrote called uh, the guardian devil and it is some of the best reading i have ever like experienced from a comic book it's a solid story and the only fan service that i will say that's in it is i believe it's spider-man but here's the thing you could probably take out Spider-Man and substitute any person, just any regular old Joe, and this conversation still makes sense. So I, I think the same thing happens in uh, another another comic book he wrote, which is uh, Spider-Man and the Black Cat, where it's basically a story from the Black Cat's point of view. It doesn't necessarily have fan service in it, but it's it's still an intriguing story on its own. So I'm not saying being a super fan helps, but having having passion for what you do, having passion for the source material does help. And Kevin Smith has always, always, always been someone that has a tremendous amount of reverence for comics. I mean, without comics, Clerks wouldn't have gotten made. He wouldn't have been able to, you know, create Clerks. Oh, I yeah. mean, all of those things are foundational elements of who he is and you know we could have an entire podcast geeking out over kevin smith but i think his the reverence that he has helps him stay true to the spirit of the characters and the stories all right but like i said with that one comic i i know absolutely nothing about daredevil i'm sure a well-seasoned veteran of daredevil could point out you know this is this character from this page of this comic book i don't care 
it was a really good story and I enjoyed reading it and I still enjoy reading it. I think, I think the context of a super fan does help, but I do think, you know, it'd be easy to get blinded by that passion. You know, people have often asked me, you know, Hey, if you were to direct a Godzilla movie and then I just stopped them right there, I'm just like, I wouldn't direct a Godzilla movie. My brain, my mind has a particular vision of Godzilla that's too stunted in 60 plus years of history. I would be the wrong person to direct Godzilla because I'm I'm too close to the material. Whereas you wouldn't want me directing a Spider-Man movie. Well, I didn't say that. I would just hope you'd have the self-control to, <laughs> to direct one. That's, that's my the thing. thing. I wouldn't. <laughs> Give me a Star War. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it was wise to grab a guy like Meyer who didn't really know anything about Star Trek, but respected it enough to go back to the source material, learn it, and do his job well as a storyteller. It worked. You know, who who would have thought getting this like, you know, literary uh, nut to to direct a Star Trek movie? How well did that work? I mean, it, it worked really well. And I think that this could honestly be a topic for an entire episode. Right, right. We, <laughs> we could probably. Yeah, it's yeah, veering, it's it, veering a, a little bit away from Star Trek, too. But I just. Yeah. I think that Star Trek 2 is a magnificent example of a great sequel, a great film, probably the best film in an entire franchise, one of the best stories in an entire franchise, created by someone who isn't necessarily, you know, a a, a fanboy of the franchise. And I do wish more, you know, internet fans, fandoms in general, and even producers at film studios would remind themselves of that and be more open to pulling a wild card out for certain certain projects right and i mean i i don't think we're making light of the countless number of people that are involved in projects like this either no no no, mean, no 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 you know I, i've mentioned harv bennett a bunch of times on this today i mean we're 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 all very aware that it's not just nick meyer playing god with star trek there are a lot of people involved <laughs> No, it was, don't it was come Harf, for us. It was, it was Harv Bennett playing God with Star Trek. It was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think we've we've exhausted a lot of topics, but we're just. I think this is something that we could continue talking about. But let's Absolutely. make this episode manageable. Maybe we can revisit this again sometime. <laughs> Star Trek Two Part Two. <laughs> Star Trek Two Two. Um, yeah. Any other final thoughts before we jump into? Our pitch, pitch, pitch perfect and <laughs> fanboy 50s. I have a question for our fan and I'm, I'm dead serious. I want people to actually respond this time because it's a good question. Who would win in a fight? The Enterprise or the Orville? Uh, kind, of, we kind of depend on the Enterprise, I would think. Like, like, which, like which Enterprise are we talking here? Let's say A. Uh, a the uh, A is significantly smaller. I don't think quite has the same firepower. Someone correct me. No, thank you. I can't compete. I'll have with to look knowledge. up the specs. I'll have to look up the specs. I'm going to call Tim Allen and uh, hopefully no, no, he'll have Orville. the specs for me. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> you're calling. You're calling the tool man for a spaceship. Who better? Well, well done, guys. I thought that was an awesome awesome discussion of this movie that we clearly love 
speaking of fanboys, I mean, and fangirls, we're obviously big fans of this movie, but we like other stuff too. So what do you say we get into some fanboy 50s? Let's do it. Dave, since you have been doing an excellent job being our fearless leader, why don't you go first? Oh. <laughs> Hold on. Let me take a page out of your book. I wasn't prepared. <laughs> I was really hoping for that, too. Like, that went according to plan. I, that couldn't have been. No one could have written that. That's fantastic. Uh, okay, let's do it. On your mark, get set, go. So I've been reading a comic graphic novel thing about Jack Kirby. It's basically a biography about all about Jack Kirby, but it's written in comic format. And it's it's just about the most unique presentation of a biography that I've ever seen. It's it's brilliant. It just been a lot of fun to read through that. And it's got me interested in watching some more documentaries about Jack Kirby, which I've loved so much. Uh, I just finished watching one. It was a French, actually a mostly French documentary all about Jack Kirby talking about his time in World War II and how he incorporated that into aspects of his art that we see in things like, you know, new gods, Iron Man, Spider, all these different things that he helped create. I'm okay with that. It's a pretty good. That's a good Jack Kirby rant. I like that one. Uh, JR, are you ready? Yeah, I can be. All right. On your mark, get set, go. Lately, I've been visiting Borderlands 3, which I've been neglecting for for probably almost a year now. And I got to say, it's probably one of the most fun games I've played in a very long time. The Calypso Twins don't measure up to Handsome Jack quite as well but it's still a very fun very entertaining game and shout out to my boy dave who's been joining me and we uh have just been mowing down enemies left and right every monday tuesday wednesday at around six o'clock for about an hour and we just basically get in our gunmen and mow people down it's a lot of fun i recommend playing borderlands 3 if you haven't picked it up yet pick it up I don't know how much time I have left. And time. (laughs) (laughs) I've had a blast playing with you, by the way. Like, that is so much fun. I got to say, one of my best uh, memories so far is just us being bunkered down with all those troops. And I go, all right, wait, I'm going to try something. Stand next to me. And I jump in my iron bear. And all I hear is, oh, hell yeah. For, for reference, my uh, Iron Bear is a giant mech, and I found an option where you can add an additional gunner onto it. So I put a point in that, and I jump in, and Dave just hops on my back and starts mowing down people as we're just walking through the alleyway. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's been a lot of fun. Um, it really has been. Uh, Rebecca, how about Let's you? Let's do this. Yarp. You ready? We'll keep more than less. I am Mark. Get set. Go. I'm very interested in this game called Ghost of Tsushima. It takes place in the late 13th century in Japan, and the Mongolians have conquered most of the East Nations, and Tsushima Island is what stands between Japan and the Mongol Empire. You can play as 
Jin Sakai, or Sakai, a samurai warrior and the last of his clan, to try and take back his homeland. This is a third-person game. It's full of action and adventure. The atmosphere and background looks absolutely breathtaking and gorgeous. Apparently, you can use certain animals as your guide on your journey. There's a weapon equipment involved and armors upgrades. It sounds like a reason... Sounds like the recent Tomb Raider games only takes place in Japan. I'm very interested in this game, and I'm a lover of exploring vast areas. Undergoing- and time. Shut up. Becca, I noticed you mentioned... <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> All right, Captain. Rebecca, I noticed you mentioned you're into this game. Does that mean you've finished Final Fantasy VII? <laughs> <laughs> and g how about you you ready yeah i'm ready let's do this all right on your mark get set go all right so this is more of a story but uh it harkens back to something we enjoyed a lot Uh, a friend of mine she was we were talking at night and she was like you know i really miss this game we should really we should really get back on this and uh okay all right well let's let's um let's see what we can do about uh buying some of this up and uh she's like are you, are you serious are you actually going to do this right now i was like well i got nothing better to do right now and so i i put in a few orders made some really old orders for an old wii game and uh lo and behold now i have uh two guitar hero guitars and yes. uh, rock band rock band 2 and the guitar hero world tour all that stuff and we're <laughs> pulling it back out all those things for our for our dusty old wii and using that to rock out in the uh in our in our massive room here <laughs> time i know what we're doing when i come down i i nearly <laughs> forgot to keep time once you started talking about it i was just enthralled like oh tell me more <laughs> i was sitting i was sitting here going okay it's not jungle speed uh <laughs> she she's going to be on the lookout for the drum set but uh, i got the guitars and uh the mic so we're <laughs> well it's funny when I when I was thinking about coming down, I was actually thinking about bringing my old PS3 and bringing Guitar Hero and well, Rock you'd Band. Have, you'd have more songs because we yeah. can't we can't download any of them anymore. Yeah, I know because they're, all they're the networks are down. Yeah, yeah. Because the other, I was thinking about well, if we did a video, what would we do? And I was like, wait a minute, didn't Once Upon a Time we do uh, Rock Band, Feel Good Drag? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that needs to happen again. <laughs> With Dave and I once again unable to hit Christian's vocals. We tried. Me almost, smashing the, <laughs> me almost smashing the guitar against the back wall. Oh my gosh. Oh. Oh, speaking of Pitch Perfect, <laughs> what do you say? Um, who had Pitch Perfect last time? Was I Rebecca? Did. Oh, no, I did. It, was, it was JR. I was little old me. So in case you missed it, last time JR's little pitch perfect was A group of kids are sent to an island to battle out so there's only one winner. But for one the stakes are higher than the rest. Poorly pitched. So uh, that was the pitch pitch. Does anybody have any guesses? I do. I have a guess. Fire away. Battle Royale. Any other guesses? Battle Royale <sighs> was going to be my guess as well. Hunger Games? <laughs> I knew Rebecca was going to say that. Or like some weird TV adaptation of Lord of the Flies. <laughs> <laughs> you guys ready for this? 
Okay. Yeah. You get Oh my god. <laughs> no. Are you kidding okay. me? I quit. I'm I'm not on the podcast anymore. I'm not on this podcast anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. This is G signing off. Been fun. See ya. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you all. <laughs> well done. Well done, sir. I only came up with that because I looked over and I was like, oh, yeah, I have my little signed uh, Blue Eyes White Dragon card from Eric Kaiba. Oh my gosh, I should do Yu Gi Oh! I hate you all. I hate every single one of you with all the bile in my stomach. I hate you all. I was expecting Re- Rebecca I'm, to get it. She's the yeah, one who played well, the game I'm the most. Sorry. Uh, well, well, the good news is now there's only two to go. Um, Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> I am. I. I. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's move on to something else that'll make us upset. Rebecca, apparently you have a pitch perfect for us. I do. I do. I do. I do. Lay it on us. A man's father is kidnapped, and the only way to save him, the man must embrace his multiple personalities or his father dies. Huh. Huh. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Huh. So make sure you guys tune in next time to see what Rebecca's Pitch Perfect was. Now, this was a Trek episode, and, you know, with so many quadrants to cover, it helps to have a fleet of other podcasts that talk all things Trek. For all things Trek, make sure you have these awesome pods in your playlist. Nerd Trek Podcast, Warped Trek, Deck 13 Podcast, and Rewind, a Star Trek Podcast. Make sure you guys check them out. We'll be sure to link those in our show notes. Now, Acting Captain's Log. Supplemental. (laughs) I mentioned before that this is a movie that has a heartbeat. It has a heartbeat that somehow after almost 40 years, it still retains its profound meaning. For me, it's nearly a pitch-perfect symphony of excellent direction, compelling story, uh, wonderful performances, breathtaking visuals, and music. It's a flick that I find personally to be very relatable. Not that I have genetically altered Superman trying to kill me, but you know we're all getting older, dealing <laughs> with these challenges that aging has brought us. And not only that, but I think it shows how resentment can truly be your own demise. Something I think that we can all take away from this regardless of age. So once again, guys, thank you guys so much for joining us in our discussion of Star Trek to Wrath of Khan. If you want to know where else to find me, I do another geek pod with my fiance called Pizza and Parsecs available wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can check us out on bit.ly backslash links PMP for our website and socials. And G here. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Gman of Mysterioid for all your Godzilla needs. I'm JR. You can find me on Instagram at LittleManCosplay, where I just come up with little ideas. And I'm Rebecca. And if you'd like to check out some of my artwork, you can find me on the Linktree app, linktr.ee slash reb.hudge. And we have been, and always shall be, the Drift Space. You can check out our show on bit.ly backslash TDS links, where you can find us on all your favorite podcatchers. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you're sharing it with all your friends and make and like we talked about before, make sure you're hitting us up on those socials. We post a lot of really funny content out there and awesome content at the Drift Space. Geek out with us. Say hey. Come hang with us. We just love to hear from you. We love making internet friends. And as always, thanks so much for your listening and for your support. Stay nerdy, my friends. Thanks. Still old friends. Live long. Out of all the podcasts I've encountered in my travels, ours is the most weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh...